Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Thanks to you at home for joining us. We've got a great big show just this evening. And in just a few minutes, I'll be joined live here on set by Representative Pramila Jayapal, who is chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. We have a lot to ask her about with just three weeks left until the midterm elections. But first, during the second half of his presidency, and even since he has been out of office, Donald Trump has been obsessed with a man named John Durham. I look forward to Bull Durham's report. That's the one I look forward to. What happened to Durham? Where's Durham? And by the way, where's Durham? What happened? Where is he? He disappeared. Trump was obsessed with John Durham, who he called Bull Durham. John Durham. Because he was the guy who was going to prove once and for all that the entire Trump-Russia investigation was a hoax. Exactly as Trump had always said. Justice was coming. It was just around the corner. John Durham had been handpicked by Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, for expressly that purpose. And Trump's allies and the right-wing media were obsessed with John Durham as well. Durham was going to blow the lid off the whole Russia hoax conspiracy. People were going to go to jail. People like Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and Barack Obama, they were all going to be locked up, thanks to John Durham. But the months and then the years ticked by, and John Durham produced nothing. And not for a lack of trying. Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, put so much pressure on John Durham to produce some kind of result before the 2020 election that Durham's top aide resigned rather than be part of such a politicized investigation. John Durham did manage to get one guilty plea from a single FBI agent on a tiny tangential charge, and that agent got a year's probation. When that happened, that probation, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, at the time the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he proclaimed, quote, the wheels of justice are turning. And he added, quote, more to come, more to come. Earlier this year, nearly three years after John Durham started investigating, Donald Trump said Durham was close to exposing the crime of the century. A few months later, John Durham finally brought a case to trial. But it wasn't to charge the members of the Obama administration or the FBI for doing dastardly, nefarious things to Donald Trump. Durham lodged a single charge against a lawyer connected to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign, one extremely tenuous charge of lying to the FBI. Not the FBI lying, the FBI being lied to, as in the FBI was the victim in all of this. It took a jury just six hours to unanimously acquit that lawyer of any wrongdoing. John Durham finally had his moment in court, and he lost badly. The jury forewoman told the reporters outside the courthouse back then, quote, I think we could have spent our time more wisely. Ouch. Well, today, John Durham's second and likely final prosecution ended. And you know what? He did slightly better. This time, it took the jury a whole nine hours rather than six. 
to fully acquit Durham's target of all four charges against him. Spare a moment to marvel at how astonishing this is, even just statistically. Federal prosecutors almost never lose cases when they go to trial. Their success rate is over 80%. And yet John Durham managed not just to lose, but to lose twice. The other remarkable thing about this latest trial is that John Durham lost, that that John Durham lost, is that he, (laughs) defense, didn't call any witnesses, not one, because they didn't need to. Durham charged the defendant, in this case, Igor Denchenko, with several counts of lying to the FBI in connection to the Trump-Russia investigation. Side note, again, the FBI was lied to here, which is quite the opposite of the FBI lying. Anyway, during the trial, Durham's own FBI witnesses testified to Danchenko's truthfulness. Durham's own witnesses. In fact, they said that Danchenko was a model informant whose information had aided them in dozens of investigations. And they said losing Danchenko as an informant damaged national security. Now, why did the FBI lose Danchenko as an informant? Because Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, outed him. To make Trump happy, Barr handed over sensitive Russia investigation documents to, who else? The wheels of justice returning, Senator Lindsey Graham. Graham promptly made them public, and Denchenko's identity as an FBI informant was revealed. It was Senator Graham who said the wheels of justice were turning and that there was more to come from the Durham investigation. Turns out the more to come part was a revelation that John Durham, in the end, had nothing And the investigation that was supposedly uncovering the crime of the century ended today not with a bang, but with a whimper. Or perhaps a sad trombone. Joining us now is Matt Miller, former chief spokesman for the Justice Department in the Obama administration. Matt, thanks so much for being with me tonight. Thanks for having me. So what is, there's a lot to unpack here, but what stuck out to me, and I'm sure you got a sense of it in the beginning of this segment, is that the charges that he filed all actually ended up painting the FBI as a victim. Now, never setting aside the fact that the defendants were acquitted on all these charges, this idea that the FBI was part of some conspiratorial web to undermine the Trump administration was, was not even something John Durham tried to prove in court. Yeah, I think that really is the big takeaway. If you look at how this investigation began, it was Bill Barr trying to prove what Donald Trump had long claimed, that the the investigation into him started because of political bias at the FBI and that he was the victim of a witch hunt. That was the reason this investigation uh, was begun in the first place, despite the fact that the Department of Justice Inspector General had investigated these, these very claims and found there was no truth to them. But that's why John Durham was appointed, and he never even brought a charge to, to try and sustain that case, let alone be successful in court, as you, I think, very wisely point out. All of these charges were the FBI being lied to, not the FBI lying about Donald Trump. It was, a, 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 I think, from the beginning, an investigation that was, was stood up to pursue conspiracy theories. And you can pursue conspiracy theories in the right-wing media. You can make a lot of conspiracy theories, theory allegations in public. But you have to prove them in court if you work at the Justice Department. And John Durham was never able to find sufficient evidence even to bring a charge that he could take to court. And and ironically, the only group that really was damaged was the FBI and national security because we lost Denchigor Jenchenko as a model informant. 
Yeah, well, I think that that goes to the kind of dereliction of duty we saw from Bill Barr the entire time that he was AG, where he constantly put the interests of Donald Trump ahead of the interests of the Justice Department, ahead of national security, ahead of the interests of the United States, all the way up until his final days in office when he couldn't do any more for Donald Trump and he quit. But right up until then, it's consistent with the way he behaved, where he was constantly ignoring the advice of career officials, constantly overturning their recommendations to, to, to take public actions that would benefit the former president even if they were wildly consistent with the interests of justice or the interests of the United States. I, is this over now, Matt? I mean, we, the grand jury has been excused, it sounds like, in all of this. Is John Durham's handiwork, has it come to a close? Well, his cases are over. I think it's pretty clear he's not going to bring any more charges in this investigation. But one of the requirements for special counsels under the regulations is that they write a confidential report and submit it to the attorney general. And the attorney general then makes a decision whether to release that that uh, report to the public. Um, I, I think Merrick Garland will be under a lot of pressure from Republicans to release that report. Um, but I have to say, this circumstance is very different from the Mueller investigation, where uh, obviously the, the, the attorney general, Bar, uh, Bill Barr, did release that report. Um, and it's different because in that case, the subject of that investigation could not be charged. And so it was appropriate for the department to make its, its, its findings public so Congress could decide whether to impeach and convict the, the then sitting president. That's not the case here. So to release a report in this instance, uh, uh, given what we know about the way Durham has behaved, some of his inappropriate public statements during this investigation, the kind of Ill, uh, poor judgments he, he's made in bringing these charges, to release this the, the, a report publicly and let him f have the final word, I think, would really probably unfairly tarnish some people at the FBI that we know he holds ill will to based on some of the things he said uh, in, in this most recent trial. So I think that the attorney general would be wise to, to take a pause before releasing that report, maybe let us, another senior career official at the Justice Department review it and decide whether John Durham really is the person that gets to have the final word on the Russia investigation. But do you think that Merrick Garland can do that, though, Matt? I mean, given the uh, inordinate amount of scrutiny that the DOJ is under, you know, in terms of its investigation into January 6th and the Trump document scandal down at Mar-a-Lago, isn't Merrick, I mean, how is this even going to be a choice for Merrick Garland Cause, because of the pressure that's going to be on him in terms of the right wing calling for transparency? Well, he can ignore the pressure if he wants to ignore it. What he wouldn't be able to ignore would be a subpoena from Congress. So if the House does change hands uh, and Republicans control a committee, they will undoubtedly send a subpoena for this report, and he would eventually have to turn it over. But it doesn't have to be the last word. Lots of times in the past, there's there's ample precedent for, that, for this. When reports like this have been written by the Justice Department, the leadership decides whether that actually reflects their view. John Durham doesn't get to be the final... Uh, get to be the final arbiter of what the Justice Department believes. So it would be appropriate for Merrick Garland either review it and, and come up with his conclusions or maybe more appropriately refer it to the senior career official, as has been done in the past, and let that individual review it and decide whether he believes the conclusions John Durham has drawn, conclusions which we know at least in two public cases have been rejected by juries, uh, are the conclusions that the Justice Department in, in its considered wisdom actually agrees with and wants to let stand before the public. I got to say, the election was not fraudulent. John Durham found nothing. There is no witch hunt. And yet all of those claims are still repeated, despite the fact that they've been debunked by Trump and his right wing allies. And I guess I wonder, we now know that Durham really had nothing. A jury decided twice as much. 
Where does this leave us politically? I mean, do you think that Trump's still going to be talking about Durham? Are we still going to be hearing about the Durham investigation on Fox News? I just wonder in this day and age how much the actual veracity of things truly matters when you're talking about the game of uh, Republican political football. I'm sure they will continue to talk about it. the thing about conspiracy theories is you can never prove them wrong to people who want to believe them. And that's the, the troubling, th- the most troubling thing, I think, about this appointment in the first place uh, and the thing that made it so cynical in the first place. It ultimately, you know, doesn't matter to some extent what John Durham proves. Of course, it matters to people that are paying attention, that, but that want to find the actual facts and believe in the truth. But you can't take back all the Fox News cable segments that ran over the past two years. You can't take back the thousands of news stories that were written by, by by the right-wing media that have per, per, uh, advanced this lie that the Mueller investigation was founded on bias uh, and didn't find anything. And so, to some extent, even though Durham didn't prove anything, the investigation set out what it attempted to do, and that was to smear Bob Mueller, smear the Justice Department, smear the FBI, and to call into question the very good work that they did uh, in, the, in the Russian Russia investigation and the findings and the convictions that they won in federal court. One last question for you, Matt, Um, a subject of perennial interest and intrigue, the Steele dossier. To a lot of people, it's been discredited. We have, you know, I mean, most people say it's been discredited to some degree. But we just learned that one of the primary sources for it, Igor Igor Denchenko, is a, 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 a source with sterling credentials. So are there any implications or inferences we can draw about the veracity of the Steele dossier from that? I think there were some things in the Steele dossier that were probably true, although the most sensational charges that it made have proven not to be true. Uh, but I think the thing that we can always take away is that the Steele dossier ultimately was irrelevant to what the FBI did. It wasn't the reason the FBI started its investigation, and it ultimately was irrelevant to any of the findings that Mueller found uh, that that, uh, that made its way into his public report or into the charges he brought against a number of people in the president's orbit. So while the Steele dossier made for sensational reading, ultimately it was completely irrelevant to what the Justice Department found in the work that it did investigating the former president. Former Justice Department spokesman Matt Miller, thanks as always for your time and thoughts, Matt. Thanks, Alex. We have much more to get to here this busy Tuesday. Up next on a day when Kevin McCarthy tells reporters about all the programs he wants to cut if he becomes speaker, and all the Republicans who might be leading that charge, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal joins us here live to talk about how Democrats are planning to stop him. We'll be right back. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves... Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
This is what House Republicans are calling their commitment to America. An economy that's strong, a nation that's safe, a future that's built on freedom, and a government that's accountable. Those vague platitudes are what the House Republican Caucus rolled out as a platform last month. The fine print in their commitment to America plan doesn't really have much else in it. Some parts are a little more specific, like saying Congress will ensure only women can compete in women's sports, or saying that they will protect the lives of unborn children. Even then, though, the platform doesn't really explain how the party plans to do any of that if they take control of the House next month. But if you look at what Republican leaders are saying, well, then they are being quite clear, and their plans are very dark. Back in 2011, Republicans used the threat of financial collapse as part of their negotiations with President Obama. And now Republicans are planning to do it all over again. Today, in an interview with Punchbowl News, Republican House leader Kevin McCarthy said that if Republicans retake control of the House, he is planning to hold the U.S. debt limit hostage to force Democrats to sign off on conservative policy changes. Quote, we'll provide you more money, but you've got to change your current behavior. McCarthy was wise enough to deflect when asked specifically what he had in mind as far as the spending cuts. But the four top contenders for the House budget chairman, if Republicans win in November, they have been more upfront. All four of them told Bloomberg last week that they plan to use this debt crisis hostage technique to get things like Social Security and Medicare eligibility changes and work requirements for safety nets like the SNAP food program. Raising the eligibility age for Social Security or Medicare and restricting access to food for our country's most impoverished people, those are all deeply unpopular ideas. But the theory here is that that does not matter. Republicans are saying that if they take the House, they will give Democrats an option. Cut social safety nets or Republicans will destroy the global economy on purpose. It is totally bonkers, but it's real and the Republicans are not hiding it. They are saying out loud exactly what they are planning to do if they take power and everyone should start listening. In the same interview today, McCarthy foreshadowed that Ukrainian military aid might also be at stake if Republicans take the House. He said, quote, it can't be a blank check. That threat to cut off military aid to our ally in Ukraine as it fights off an invasion from Vladimir Putin's Russia, that drew the following response from Liz Cheney this evening. I don't know that I can say I was surprised, but um, uh, I, I think it's it's really uh, disgraceful that today uh, Minority Leader uh, McCarthy suggested that if the Republicans get the majority back, um, that that we will not continue to provide support for the Ukrainians. Disgraceful, maybe, but not exactly surprising. Early last year, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene was kicked off all of her committee assignments in the House for spreading hateful and violent conspiracy theories. McCarthy has pledged not just to give Marjorie Taylor Greene back her assignments if he takes power, but potentially to give her better committee assignments. After the FBI raided former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in August, McCarthy tweeted that Attorney General Merrick Garland should preserve his documents and clear his calendar. McCarthy vowed to investigate the Justice Department. The top Republican member on the House Armed Services Committee has said he plans to hold investigations on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. The top Republican on the House Oversight Committee wants to open a national security investigation into Hunter Biden. He also wants to open an investigation into Anthony Fauci for some reason. The Republican plan for Congress, at least while Joe Biden is president, is to turn it into a zoo. 
a zoo with an active economic hostage crisis where nothing can really get done. Republicans know they can't really outlaw abortion. President Biden has said he would veto it. They know they can't really do all sorts of things, but they would have the power to investigate and they would have the power of the purse. And the plan seems to be to use both of those to sow chaos. Joining us now is the chair of the Progressive Caucus, Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. It's thrilled to have you here, even if the subject matter is quite depressing. It is dark, but it's great to be with you. Um, So my first question is, I know the Democrats have been running ahead of these midterms on a message about what Joe Biden has done broadly in terms of jobs in the economy and the threat uh, that women are facing, well, families are facing everywhere in terms of reproductive choice. Do you think Democrats have painted a strong enough picture of the chaos that awaits in November and beyond if the Republicans take back the House? Well, I think we're finding out every day more and more of the chaos that they will create because they're putting it on the table. Like you said, they're not hiding it. Um, We will see more investigations like Durham's investigation. We will see the Justice Department politicized. We will see all of the programs that really matter to people across the country, particularly in this moment when people are still struggling with the high cost of living, cutting Social Security and and Medicare, two of the most popular programs in the history of this country, and having a party that is really about saying no to the American people, using Congress as a hostage site, which is what he's talking about. And we've seen this over and over again. You know, when Democrats have been in power, we have voted to to raise the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. And we haven't tied it to policy because we understand that the entire country needs the debt ceiling to be raised. For Kevin McCarthy to be saying so clearly that he plans to hold everything hostage, to to put politics over people, and to be a party that is controlled by extreme mega Republicans, I think has got to be part of the message that's out there. Well, yeah, because I remember in 2018, right, there was a lot happening in terms of impeachment. But when you went to those important swing districts across the House, the message and the message discipline was quite good. Republic- Democrats were talking about the ACA. They were talking about pre-existing conditions. They weren't actually talking about a lot of other things that would be, I think, more politically expedient. Yeah. And it worked. And I guess my question is, that doesn't seem to be the same message that Democrats are using right now. Is there time to change it in the remaining weeks? And also, why does Kevin McCarthy think that this this message works? Like, why do Republicans feel they can talk about slashing Medicare and Social Security and not pay a price for it politically? Well, they lost because when we were talking about health care and yes. they were talking about crazy things, people said, you're talking about crazy things. We're not going to vote for you. We're going to vote for our economic interests. And I think now... Um, they have been taken over. They are the party of the big lie, the party of the cult uh, of Donald Trump. They're the party of uh, people who do not I- identify with even Liz Cheney. I mean, it's crazy now. But I think that we are talking about it. We're just talking about it in a slightly different way. We're saying freedom is on the ballot, right? Freedom to vote is on the ballot. Freedom for economic security is on the ballot. Freedom for our democracy is on the ballot. And so I think we are you can't it, it's a it's a very diverse set of things that people care about right now so you have to focus on economics mm-hmm. because that's always one of the key things yeah. that people are focusing on we've got a high cost of living right now we've got global inflation rates that are still high so people are thinking about that 
we got to focus on abortion because we know it is a driver for people across this country, particularly women. And we've got to focus on our democracy. And I think that's kind of the way we've been looking at it. But they're letting us show them, show the American people, the chaos that they will create and the fact that they are not interested in helping people to have better lives. Well, can I ask you about the threats to democracy? Because there's new polling out today. Yeah. That says 71% of uh, respondents, uh, let's call them just generically American, believe that American democracy is currently under threat. But at the same time, almost 40% of them said they would be comfortable voting for a candidate who says they think the 2020 election was stolen. I mean, what does that tell you? It's a really tough environment. The problem is what, I mean, we are talking about fascism at our door and what people Unfortunately, across this country, what we're dealing with is that people don't believe the truth, right? I mean, they're being sold lies all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, there isn't a premium placed on truth by political candidates. I was at an event last night and somebody said to me, how do you get people to actually tell the truth on television when they're talking? (laughs) And I said, this is the challenge, right? They are not doing that. And so there are a lot of people, unfortunately, that have been sold a bill of goods. And that's the 40% who feel like, well, maybe there was something that I heard that is true when it's clearly not. It doesn't matter, Alex. We've got 60% of the country that is still clear about what the threats are in front of us. And we only have to win 51% in all of these places. And so I think um, when I've been, I just came from Georgia. I was in Michigan, Minnesota. I'm going to New Mexico. You're everywhere. You're everywhere. (laughs) I'm going everywhere. I'm going to rural areas. I'm on college campuses. And what I can tell you is that people are dealing with, um, you know, a lot of fear and uncertainty about their lives and their livelihoods. And I think we need to be acknowledging that. We need to talk about the price gouging because they see it of these big oil companies who made tens of billions of dollars of profit, yeah. even as gas prices are still high, or even the food monopolies, the agribusinesses that are big monopolies that are minting money as food prices are going up. And we have to show both what we have done, lowest unemployment in over half a century, cancel college debt, did the child tax credit to help people. Republicans ended it. If we are back in office with control, we will continue to take care of people's economic costs. And equally important, we will actually have a democracy where people's votes matter and their freedoms matter. I want, I, well, there's a lot of negative things to talk about um, in terms of what's on the horizon. There is one positive piece of news, and as a fellow Asian American sister, I will draw everybody's attention to it with you. Today, the U.S. Mint announced that the late Chinese American actress Anna Mae Wong will be the first Asian American to be featured on U.S. currency. Um, it's part of a piece of legislation passed in your Congress uh, by uh, Barbara Lee, honoring women throughout history. It's high time. It's so past time, and it is so exciting to be here with you um, on this show with your historic role. And your historic role. For South Asian American. But to have, you know, to have us on quarters. Yeah, on the money. uh, On the money feels like just a huge thing, and I really want to call out Barbara Lee because she's my sister in the struggle, and she understands what this means to recognize the role of diverse women throughout our history who are often left out of the history book. It's true. And I will say, it's not unlinked, right? Right. Greater representation and the pushback you're seeing in certain parts of the country against a more inclusive society. But 
they're minting it. So deal it's with all it. From Jai Paul, chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus. It's always good to see you. Thank you uh, for your time and good luck out there. We Thank will be you, watching. Alex. We have much more ahead this hour. We have talked about how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' political stunt using Venezuelan migrants is starting to backfire. But what happens with the stunt to arrest people who thought they could vote? Up next, what Republicans are not doing about white supremacy. Stay with us. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Last night, as the two Ohio Senate candidates sparred in their final debate before Election Day, their most heated exchange was not about the economy or abortion or gun policy. It was about an old, dangerous idea that was once a fringe theory in white supremacist circles, which means it was pretty fringe. And it took center stage in a debate for one of the seats that will help decide which party controls the United States Senate. This great replacement theory was the motivator for the shooting in Buffalo, where that shooter had all these great replacement theory writings that J.D. Vance agrees with. Some sicko got this information that he's peddling with, again, those extremists that he runs around with, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, all these guys, they just want to stoke this racial violence. We're tired of it, J.D. This kid goes to a, a, a grocery store in Buffalo where black people shop and shoots them up. No, we, we want to move on from that. Everyone's exhausted. Senate candidate and Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan pressed this point, that his opponent, J.D. Vance, has previously spoken against immigration to the U.S. by invoking the language of white replacement theory. That theory is predicated on the idea of white extinction, the idea that white Americans will be replaced by a non-white population, one that will extinguish white culture and tradition. The conspiracy theory is also anti-Semitic. Many of its proponents falsely claim a Jewish-led cabal is behind the plot in order to achieve power. The theory uses the language of immigrant invasion and voter replacement to try and scare people into believing this ridiculous conspiracy. And now we are hearing echoes of this language repeatedly in this midterm campaign cycle. Candidates like J.D. Vance, his surrogate, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters have all used that language about the invasion and the coming Armageddon of non-whites to campaign for national office. 
We have an invasion in this country because very powerful people get richer and more powerful because of it. Joe Biden's five million illegal aliens are on the verge of replacing you, replacing your jobs and replacing your kids in school and coming from all over the world. They're also replacing your culture. And that's not great for America. The Democrats want to flood this country with illegal aliens. If you connect the dots as a candidate for office and say, like, obviously, the Democrats, they hope to just change the demographics of our country. They hope to import an entirely new electorate. Man, they call you a racist. That language carries a lot of weight. It is dangerous and it has proven deadly to some non-white people in this country. But it has become an essential part of some Republican campaigns with no admonishment from party leadership. Joining us now is Dr. Kathleen Ballou, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University and author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Professor, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I, it feels from the outside that immigration has basically become a vehicle to convey the white replacement theory. Do you think that's accurate? I mean, th that is what it feels like the conversation has devolved to, at least on the right. Yeah. One way to understand replacement theory is that it comes out of a set of fringe ideologies. This has been a live idea on the edges of our politics um, in the recent past and even earlier in the 20th century. And the way it works is that it connects all of these different social issues that we usually think of as sort of capital C conservative um, through the lens of white reproduction and particularly through the birth of white children and a hyper focus on the white birth rate. Mm. So immigration becomes a concern because large numbers of people coming in might outnumber the white population in the country. But then also abortion is a concern because it might white lower the white birth rate. Feminism is a concern because if women are out of the home, that might lower the white birth rate. Yep. And we see a whole bunch of other issues like opposing gay rights, opposing transgender movements, um, opposing um, close contact with communities of color. All of these become seen as the same kind of a threat. What, what, you know, the, the other piece of immigration is it allows Republicans to vilify people of color using the term outsider, even though the effects of that racist language is felt by communities of color that are native to this country, right? Yeah, and a, a lot of communities that have been here for a very long time. One thing that was striking in the J.D. Vance uh, debate is that his defense was, of course I wouldn't do that because I have this biracial family, I have these beautiful children, I get threats against my family. But the thing is that this language is dangerous for a whole bunch of children, not just those children. This language allows attacks. We have a, a near past history that has a, a, a record of violent attacks on people using this idea set. And we have a whole century of vigilantism and other kinds of anti-immigrant violence that have been enabled by exactly this kind of thinking. To what degree is this cyclical? I mean, we talk about what happened in the earlier part of the 20th century. Stephen Miller, who is the architect of Trump's immigration policies and a fan of President Calvin Coolidge's Immigration Act of 1924, which was effectively it is a law based on eugenics. Is it just a matter of demographic change that this kind of vitriol and poisonous rhetoric springs up? Or is are we at a sort of apex point that is unparalleled in modern American history? So as a historian, I'm contractually obligated to say that we are off the map contextually. We have too many different factors at play at this point to draw any true historical parallel. But what I can say is that as somebody who has studied extremist movements and the Klan, 
one kind of context that we should be looking to in the 1920s when that anti-immigration legislation was passed. That was also the peak prior to now of Klan activity and Klan violence. That's when 4 million people or 10% of the state of Indiana were in the Klan and it was totally socially acceptable. We have pictures of Klansmen marching down the National Mall with robes and hoods, but their faces in plain view. They were doing Sunday school picnics and church pageants and business campaigns. That's where we are in extremism. It's in our mainstream, it's in our politics, and it's going to be incredibly difficult to extricate from here. Yeah, you mentioned how intersectional it is, and it seems impossible to excise that from the broader conservative platform at this stage of the game. Well, the concern, I think, is that when we see this kind of mainstreaming without a backstep. It isn't that somebody is accidentally picking up an idea and saying, oops, I used extremist rhetoric. It's that people are using it in ways that are meant to be plausibly deniable, a bit here, a snippet there. But as we see in that clip set, this is a coordinated campaign where people are using this idea across the Republican campaigns. Um, It's incredibly alarming if you live in a society that's interested in the rule of law by fair election, because this means that extremist groups that previously had been targeting our populations through mass casualty attacks and individual acts of of terror are now also making attacks on our institutions themselves. Um, well, it's good to talk to you about it, and it's good to talk about what's happening. That's the first step, right? Kathleen Ballou, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University and author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. Thank you for your time and wisdom tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. Up next here tonight, new video shows that even the police Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is using to carry out one of his cruel schemes. Even the police do not understand why he's doing it. Why is y'all doing this now and and this happened years ago? I don't know. I I have no idea, man. What exactly Governor DeSantis is trying to do coming up next. In 2018, Florida citizens easily passed a constitutional amendment to restore voting rights to convicted felons who had finished serving their sentences, accepting only those convicted of murder or felony sex offense. In 2018, that amendment was popular. It passed with nearly 65 percent of the vote, and it applied to nearly 1.5 million Floridians. That constitutional amendment was a game changer, especially for black Florida voters. That's because before the ballot initiative passed, more than one in five potential black voters were barred from voting. That all changed with that landmark constitutional amendment in 2018, at least until Republicans got their hands on it. In 2019, the Republican-controlled legislature under Governor Ron DeSantis passed a law that allowed convicted felons to be eligible to vote only if they had repaid their court fines and fees— a sort of pay-for-play, if you will. The confusion over that change to the amendment, plus the fact that it was not made clear to convicted felons that if they were convicted of murder or a felony sex offense, then they could not vote, all of that has made it sort of a mess down in the state of Florida. And it's against that backdrop that two months ago, Governor DeSantis held a big press conference to announce his crackdown on voter fraud in Florida, a crackdown that targeted a select group of voters. DeSantis declared that his newly created election police force had made a whopping 20 arrests. And those 20 arrests included people who were ineligible to vote. They were convicted of murder or a felony sex offense. The charge in those arrests, 
is a third-degree felony. That kind of voter fraud calls for a sentence of up to five years in prison and up to $5,000 in fines. But the people targeted in this crackdown really seem to have had no idea that what they were doing, which was casting a vote, they had no idea that it was illegal, or at least that's what it appears to be in the videotape that we're about to show you, an honest mistake that is somehow grounds for them to be cuffed and taken to jail. NBC News has obtained police body cam footage from those arrests. They were first published by the Tampa Bay Times. And they show that even the police making these arrests, even the police were confounded by the entire situation. Apparently, I I guess you have a warrant? For what? I'm not sure. for voter stuff, man. Oh, my God, man. What? Yes, sir. So, unfortunately, right now, we're going to have to take you to jail. Why is y'all doing this now and and this happened years ago? I don't know. I I have no idea, man. This shit is crazy, man. Y'all put me in jail for something I didn't know nothing about. Why would y'all let me vote if I wasn't wasn't able to vote? I'm not sure, buddy. I don't know. So, man, we have a word for your arrest. For what? I'm like, voting fraud? I voted, but I ain't commit no fraud. Well, so that's the thing. I I don't know exactly what happened with it, but you you do have a warrant. That's what it's for. Oh, my God. This is a priority for the DeSantis administration, which voting rights advocates say is creating a chilling effect across the state. Joining us now is Jasmine Bernie Clark. She is the founder of the voting rights organization Equal Ground, one that works to build black political power in the state of Florida. Ms. Bernie Clark, thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. So can you tell me what kind of effect this decision to pursue voting fraud on the part of Governor DeSantis, what kind of effect has that had on the community of Floridians who are newly enfranchised with the right to vote? Certainly. This governor and his appointed election officials have moved the goalpost on voting every year since he has been elected. The creation of his multi-million dollar election task force has police departments doing his bidding, which essentially detaches this governor from his re-election bid that he would benefit from these arrests. And it also absolves him from doing his actual job. So it should actually be that he's expanding voting access, but instead he's identifying statewide um, ways to apprehend individuals when there should be a statewide agency that connects individuals to understanding what their fees and fines are so that they can vote and they can register confidently and not in fear. This governor has stoked fear um, and has removed the confidence and created more confusion. Those are the impacts we're seeing on the ground in this state since those arrests um, started to take place under his task force. When you talk about that loss of confidence and the creation of confusion, I mean, what can be done to counter this? Because it is, it is effectively terrifying to people who may not be sure if they can vote, right, and just stay home come November. It, I mean, is there any kind of grassroots effort to help people that actually can vote and get them to the polls? You know, um, we are three weeks away from an election here in Florida and across the nation. And we are also in a state where we have been grossly underfunded 
and support it to help voters get out the vote, particularly organizations like mine and others across the state. Um, but there are limited resources that have been made available through organizations like the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, where bail funds have been created and legal assistance has been provided. We don't know how far those um, funds will take people, but they are an initial start given the fact that there is just limited resources and limited capacity in this state to help support those. Um, quite frankly, this is probably one of the most inhumane acts we have seen or witnessed in this state under this administration. Which, which is saying a lot and is also of a piece with Governor DeSantis, who often launches major policy prescriptions, if you will, with no clear implementation strategy. And that policy tends to be quite controversial. Jasmine Bernie-Clark, founder of Equal Ground, thank you so much for your time and your efforts. Thank you. Up next, a little something about tomorrow night's show that I am very excited about. Details ahead. Stay with us. Before we go, I want to let you know that finally, after multiple appearances on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, look at that. <laughs> the tables have finally turned in my favor and Trevor Noah will appear on my show, this show. We will be talking about his new documentary series called The Turning Point, which is set to air on this network beginning on Sunday night. We will also discuss his surprise announcement to leave The Daily Show this December after seven years behind the desk. And we will talk about politics and what these seven insane years have shown him about America. It will be family friendly, probably. So tune in tomorrow night to see Trevor Noah right here on this show at this desk. That does it for us tonight. We'll see you tomorrow again. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. <laughs> 